Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. My name is Terry Fletcher. So today I'm going to basically do a news alert. I've been alerted for some things since the public health emergency was extended on April 16th, which was a week ago Saturday. And there were some things that came out of that extension that I just want to make sure that you're aware of. And they weren't pretty. They were basically some things that um, the HHS put out and they separated it from the COVID-19 fee-for-service waivers. And I think they did it because they are trying to basically do some um, oversight, uh, hindsight oversight, if you can believe that. And I think it's going to, there's going to be some things that your physicians are going to have to be mindful of. So let me talk to you about it. Let me just let you know what's going on. Um, Some of it may be hard to hear. I know it was really hard for me to read. And if for those of you that don't listen to my segments on Talk 10 Tuesday, this will may might be the first time that you're actually hearing it. And so I, I just wanted to let you know some of the things that they found and why certain waivers, even though the PHE was extended, why certain waivers are not going to be extended. And they relate to um, the skilled nursing facilities, inpatient hospices, uh, intermediate care facilities for individuals with intellectual disabilities, end-stage renal disease, so ESRD facilities, and then obviously SNFs and, um, again, nursing facilities. So there's some things here that really, they're just disturbing. I think that's the I think that's the word. And when I was reading through this, so when I get a memorandum from CMS and I'm reading, you know, this one is from the Centers for Clinical Standards and Quality and Quality Safety and Oversight Group. And this is the group that basically told CMS, okay, it's, you know, I know you're going to extend the COVID emergency declaration, but we need to um, end certain waivers because we have found some dereliction in services based on allowing these waivers to go through. So let me explain some of these because they give you a background. And when you find some, when you read through it, you just kind of go, okay, let me read the background. Well, what most of us do, and I hate to say we do this, but you know, if you don't do this, then more power to you, but we all do it. And I've actually stopped doing it over the last probably six months only because of information that I find on the background narrative section. But don't we all just kind of Um, go through something and basically we just look for what we're looking for. So when we weed through a lot of this information, we skim it and we just say, oh, there's telehealth or, oh, there's what they're doing for the, um, the rural health area or that's what they're doing for mental health. Well, you know what? Take the time to read some of these background responses on why they are waiving some of the waivers and why they're going to let them expire because, It's not good. So this was on, let me just give you what it is. It is the reference QSO2215NH, and it's the Center for Clinical Standards and Quality. And if you type that into Google search, whatever your search method is on your computer, you'll find it. But here's the background, and I'm just going to give you a couple of the narrative sections, and I hope it makes your head explode like mine, because you're going to be like, what in the heck was Medicare thinking? So one of the things that had an impact on waivers, it says, while the waivers of regulatory requirements have provided flexibility in how nursing homes may operate, 
They have also removed the minimum standards for quality that helped ensure residents' health and safety were protected. Findings from outside and on-site surveys have revealed significant concerns with resident care that are unrelated to infection control. They mean the COVID-19. And they said, for example, abuse, abuse, weight loss, depression, and pressure ulcers. So pressure ulcer is basically a sore that can get worse and worse and work and build up, you know, necrotic tissue where now the patient could lose a leg, lose a, um, you know, a finger, a toe or something if they're not looked at. So it says we are concerned that the waiver of certain regulatory requirements has contributed to these outcomes and raises the risk of other issues. For example, by waiving requirement for training, nurses' aides and paid feeding assistants may not have received the necessary training to help identify and prevent weight loss. Similarly, CMS waived requirements for physicians and practitioners to perform in-person assessments, which may have prevented these individuals from performing an accurate assessment of the resident's clinical needs, contributing to depression and pressure ulcers. All I can think of in my head is because they allowed them in a telehealth situation that nobody pulled down the patient's sheet. And so they didn't see if they were being bathed properly, if they were being cared to properly, if they were being lotioned down properly. You know, you've got some patients who have, who are on Coumadin, who are on medications, who have, you know, tissue paper thin skin, and they need, they have special needs, which requires in-person assessments, which is why most nursing facilities and SNFs have what we, and hospice have mandatory physician in-person visits as part of being able to report it. So then it goes on, says, lastly, due to wait to the waiver of certain life safety code requirements, facilities may not have had their fire prevention systems inspected. Are they kidding? So CMS was very concerned about how residents' health and safety were impacted by the regulations that have been waived and for the length of time they were waived. So here's some of them that are going to stop as of in the um, in 30 days and I was I'm just beside myself on some of this I can't get it out of my head and so one of them was physician delegation of tasks and sniffs CMS waived the requirement that prevents a physician from delegating a task when regulations specify that the physician must perform it personally so basically they allowed the physician to pass it off to a mid-level provider and it was supposed to be under the physician Another one, CMS waived the requirement that all required physician visits must be made by the physician personally. They waived that requirement. It permitted, again, a delegation to send it to a mid-level provider who is not an employee of the facility but is working in collaboration with the physician. Obviously not close enough. And then they waived the requirement for physicians and non-physician practitioners to perform visits for nursing home residents and allow visits to be conducted via telehealth. Well, talk about a major fail. You can tell I'm absolutely absolutely hot about this. And so those are some of the things that are now going to end in 30 days. Okay, what ends in 60 days? Okay, this is even going to make you even more disgusted. So a couple of things here. It says CMS waive requirements to allow for non-SNF building to be temporarily certified and available for use by a SNF in the event there were needs for isolation processes. Okay, so you think about that for a second. But here is the problem, and this was under um, the outside windows and doors for inpatient hospice patients and for the ICF patients and SNF patients. 
CMS waived the requirement to have an outside window or outside door in every sleeping room. This permitted space is not normally used for patient care to be utilized for patient care and quarantine. Okay, well, wait a minute. Okay, this is a common sense issue for me. What was COVID or what is COVID-19? It is a respiratory virus. So you're saying that there's not, you're allowing patients to be put, um, vulnerable patients to be put in rooms that do not have a door or a window for ventilation? Are you kidding me right now? Okay, here's another one. They said, oh my gosh, see, I'm getting hot about it again. Another one, it says training. They modified the nurse aid training requirements for SNFs and nurse um, and, and nursing facilities, which required the nursing assistant to receive at least 12 hours of in-service training annually. They changed that to an hour. Uh, they also changed for feeding assistants. Okay, this is somebody who not only has to have a requirement when they um, assist in feeding to make sure they know the Heimlich remover, maneuver, to make sure they understand um, how something might need to be modified for patients who can or can't chew, who have, you know, um, you know, inability to chew, who have swallowing issues, um, who have dietary concerns. This is what they did for paid feeding assistance. They said CMS modified the requirement regarding required training of paid feeding assistants to allow the training to be a minimum of one hour in length. It's supposed to be eight hours. You can't learn everything in one hour. I've taken a first aid class. Just learning the Heimlich and learning anything that regard to CPR takes at least an hour. Okay, I'm trying not to rant. But they talked about because of this dereliction from these waivers, Patients basically were, they had obstructions in their feeding tubes. They have a, they were had obstructions in their mouth. And, you know, this is, this is really bothering me because these are waivers. These were supposed to help in an emergency situation. This didn't help. This actually made it worse. So poor quality of care, improper transfers, turning and positioning the patient, poor incontinent skin care. Uh, weight loss related to poor assisted dining assistive dining techniques. This is all related to inadequate training. And these are required components of certain um, nurse assistant training programs. And it says that they acknowledge that federal requirements allow states to use a variety of means to administer the curriculum, online classroom or on site. But they said that they, you know, they didn't provide the adequate training when they allowed them modified uh, training of one hour because most of the nurses aid and feeding assistants, they have to qualify for at least eight and some of the nurses aid for 75 hours of training in certain areas. And so this trend of poor quality care is just, it, it, it just makes me sick. I'm, I'm really, I'm actually really mad at CMS because you know, this is going to come back on the physician. This is something they're going to do um, for their lack of um, oversight and understanding that the foresight that this could happen. Of course, this is going to happen. This is why we trust or are supposed to trust our nursing facilities and skilled nursing because we can't take care of the patient at home. So the fact that this was even an issue just, oh my gosh, for lack of a better way to put it, because I'm the professional, this just frosts my cookies, let me tell you. So another thing that came up, and this was the uh, April 7th declaration and this was from the HHS secretary, but what I noticed on this, and actually if you listen to the compliance guy with Sean Weiss, I was talking a little bit about this with Sean too on our podcast last week, that 
This was a separate PHE declaration from questions that came from states, political subdivisions, and the healthcare community regarding the PHE declarations. And I was surprised that they did not include it in the uh, COVID-19 FFS, which is fee-for-service FAQ sheets, which means to me that, okay, we're going to make it an act of possible bad faith if physicians didn't follow some of the rules that were unrelated to COVID. And that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. So let me explain some of the declarations that talks about the the reach, I should say, of the HHS secretary and the reach that they don't have. So one of the questions, this is on this document, and you can actually find this document. It's public health emergency declaration, question and answers, and just type in April 7th and you'll find it. Um, so here it is, number five. It says, can a Medicare fee-for-service rules regarding physician state licensure be waived in an emergency? It says the HHS secretaries authorized the 1135 waivers that allow CMS to waive the Medicare requirement that a physician or non-physician practitioner be licensed in the state in which he or she is practicing for individuals whom the following four conditions are met. So they have to be enrolled in the Medicare program. They have to possess a valid license to practice in the state which relates to their enrollment. So it's typically the state they live in. The physician or non-physician practitioners furnishing services, whether in person or in telehealth, in a state in which the emergency is occurring in order to contribute to relief efforts or in their or in his or her professional capacity. So they're saying, again, it has to be only for COVID relief. And the physician or non-physician practitioner does not affirm is not affirmatively excluded from uh, practice in another state. Okay. In addition, they go on to say this. And this is where it, oh man, doctors are going to be like, you have got to be kidding me. It says, in addition to the statutory limitations that apply to the 1135-based licensure waivers, an 1135 waiver, when granted by CMS, does not have the effect of waiving state or local licensure requirements or any requirement specified by the state or local government as a condition for waiving its licensure requirements. They said those requirements would continue to apply unless waived by the state. Okay, wait a minute. We were not told that when um, the physicians were basically crossing state lines to see patients during the pandemic. And so here's another one. This is number 10. It says, does a PHE declaration waive or preempt state licensing requirements for healthcare providers? And they're a little bit more clear on this one. They said, no, a PHE declaration does not waive or preempt state licensing requirements. States determine whether and under what circumstances a non-federal health care provider is authorized to provide services in the state without state licensure. It says, as discussed in number five above, when the secretary issues an 1135 waiver, the secretary may waive for Medicare, Medicaid, or CHIP, it's actually SCHIP, that's the children's services, requirements that physicians and other healthcare professionals hold licenses in the state which they provide services. But again, this would be for Medicare, Medicaid, or SCHIP reimbursement purposes only and would apply only if the physician or other healthcare providers have an equivalent license from another state and are not affirmatively barred from practice in any other state area. What is this going to do to your physicians who basically took Medicare at their word, actually took HHS at their word when this first came out because it's our Health and Human you know, Services Secretary that basically said at the time, 
Alex, uh, I think it was Alex and Sarah, basically said that this is what you can do, that you're able to, you know, we're, we're actually relaxing the waivers. So if your doctor's in Florida and they want to see one of their snowbirds that couldn't fly down because of the pandemic to Florida and they live in New Jersey, you can see them. Well, okay, if they're Medicare, yes, but what if the state says our waivers for the pandemic expired? Remember, we're in year three. So they're, and in Florida, they expired, most of them, in May of 2021. So I could see if it's not COVID-related and your patient is seeing a, via telehealth a provider that does not um, live in their state, their practice is not listed in their state, and they're from an outside um, state, I could see them asking for that money back based on what they're saying here about the waivers. So you need to check not only with your liability insurance, but you need to check with your state rules. They're all different. And you would have to know what your state licensing requirements were for that date of service time frame to see if you're going to be okay. And, you know, I hate to definitely be, you know, Debbie Downer today, but this is just unbelievable when this came out last week. I'm, I'm read it five times so far and I'm just like, wait, what? So this is where it becomes extremely frustrating because you have a lot of uh, states that are saying we don't agree with the with the federal government and how long this PHE declaration has been there. And I don't blame them. I'm not saying that it doesn't still exist. All I'm saying is that a lot of the things I've read said that the reason that they extended it what, and this was in a Fierce Healthcare uh, article recently. The reason that they extended it is because they don't want telehealth on the table for midterm elections. This should have nothing to do with elections. So this really bothers me that, you know, we're all saying it's political. They're like, oh, no, it's not political. It absolutely is political. When you make that kind of statement, you're saying that you are extending a public health emergency, which you're not allowed to, by the way, unless one exists, but you're doing it for political purposes and that is wrong. It has to do be based on the emergency needs in the entire community based on the outbreak of disease or some kind of, um, you know, emergent situation or disaster. So, you know, it could be a hurricane, could be a storm before a hurricane. Um, we, we've extended the opioid crisis um, 20 times now. So there's all kinds of things that make that up, but just to, to see what they're doing here is is really disappointing. You know, you just you really need to find out some of this information in your state. And if you are listening to this, there you might have uh, there was a um, a legal webinar last week actually with my my cousin Brianna Santoli, and she went over a lot of this information. So something you you want to be able to listen to and really look at from a healthcare attorney uh, perspective because it's just. It's crazy what's out there right now and what your physicians may assume versus what is reality. Talk to your liability or malpractice insurances. Talk to your state and find out from a healthcare attorney what your options are and did you violate any rules. It's just really important you do that. So I actually have a coding question that has to do with telehealth, and I'm going to say thank you to Kimberly Gillivette Williams. Kim, I appreciate this. She's somebody I've met through LinkedIn and sent me this question today, and I thought this was actually a good question. So here's her question. It says, so if a patient is admitted in the hospital by their PCP for a condition like diabetes, 
but the patient already has an established pain management condition and a future scheduled appointment with their pain management doctor. But they want to perform a, they decide to perform a telehealth visit for that scheduled appointment during that stay. Would you say the place of service is outpatient? Would it be inpatient? What is it? The doctor's reporting in 99214. So here is my response to Kim. So the patient is not in their home. That's the first thing. And the physician, for whatever reason, chose not to go to the hospital, which they will have to explain in their notes why they did not go, because we are not in a quarantine. Uh, we are at the end of the pandemic, and there's no restrictions in hospitals now, and the patient doesn't have COVID. So why didn't the physician, if they wanted to see them, and if it was that urgent, why didn't they just go to the hospital and see them? So that's the first thing. The next thing is that the patient, remember, once you become an inpatient, you're certified for that stay. And when you're certified for that stay, you cannot receive any Part B services, which means anything under a place of service, outpatient or office. It do, it'll get kicked out as rejected because the patient's under a Part A stay. Now, if the pain physician was asked to see this patient by the primary care doctor that admitted the patient, that would be a consult or an initial hospital code if it's not a Medicare patient. But it was not. It was the, just the pain physician's choice to do a hospital telehealth visit from their office. And then the choices are actually going to be an inpatient visit. And it's going to be a subsequent hospital because it's not considered a consult or an initial where that doctor is actually working that patient up from a referral or from an needed uh, admission. This doctor is seeing them from a subsequent visit, patients inpatient, and that's my best um, recommendation, either 99231 to 233. But my biggest thing is here is that the physician is going to have to answer questions, if not well documented, why they didn't wait to see the patient in their office. Now, obviously a pain control, if this patient's RA, rheumatoid arthritis, or this patient, you know, has something where they absolutely had to be seen because it was emergent in nature and they were admitted, then that makes sense. But if it could have waited, or if the physician could have gone to the hospital, you're going to have to document why you didn't. Because I know that in the on the work plan, the nine different things for telehealth, some of them are about convenience versus medical necessity. And so just to get the patient off the books is not enough. So it's something that will have to be addressed. Okay, so that basically is my, my rant and my session and my podcast for this week. And I wanted to make a comment for my personal tidbit this week. So yesterday, um, when I was, um, this, so yesterday, so you'll be able to figure out the date. Basically, the mask mandate was overturned. And so on airplanes and public transportation, meaning that it can't be forced on you. So you can be, you can do whatever you decide. Now, some of those uh, airlines are, are um, private companies, so they can also, um, you know, enforce it if they want to, but there's not a, a federal mandate right now that they have to do it. So I know a lot of of the airlines basically said, okay, you don't have to do it anymore. And even some were making TikTok videos out of it. But here's what I would say to everybody, regardless of your stance on that. If you want to wear a mask, wear one. If, that was, if that's what makes you comfortable and that's what protects you, then wear one. If you have the choice not to wear one and that's your choice, then don't. And, it, and at this point, everybody, because I know we've got over 70% of the population vaccinated and over uh, almost 80% of people over 71, you need to let people make their own choices and not shame them if it's not your choice. So just try to be nice, be kind, 
and understand that that's what we that's where we live. We live in a place of freedom. And that's what freedom means. It means making the choice to do what's best for you. Okay. All right, everyone, make it a great day, make it a great week. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>